11. To come, because people have too many rifles. When they learn something their ambition runs high. And the boys always want to become generals and presidents of the republic. The Tarahumirs are careful observers of the celestial bodies. And know the Pleiades, the belt of Orion, and the morning and the evening star. The Great Dipper is of no special interest to them. Near Guachalchik the Tarahumirs plant corn in accordance with the positions of the stars with reference to the sun. They say if the sun and the stars are not equal the year will be bad, but when the stars last long the year will be good. In 1891, the sun traveled slowly, and the stars traveled quickly, and in June they had already disappeared. Therefore the Tarahumirs predicted that their crops would be below the average, which came true. On June 3D I asked an Indian how much longer the sun would travel on, and he told me that it ought not to be more than 15 days. The Tarahumirs are reputed to be good weather prophets among the Mexicans, who frequently consult them upon the prospects of rain. The Indians judge from the color of the sun when he rises as to whether there will be rain that day. If the crescent of the moon is lying horizontally, it is carrying much water, but when it stands up straight, it brings nothing. This belief is shared by the Mexicans. When the moon is full and has a ring around, she is dancing on her patio. At the period of the dark moon she is dead, but will return after three days. Eclipses are explained as collisions between the sun and the moon on the road. When they fight, the Tarahumir men make bows and arrows, and in the central part of the country are great hunters and clever at shooting. The foreshaft of their arrows is made of palo hediondo, a wood used also in the making of needles. But the people living near the Pueblo of Penalacic and the Barranca de Cobra are poor shops, and their favorite weapon is the axe. The boys still play with slings, which not so long ago were used for killing squirrels. A club with a stone Spanish. Macana is said to have been formerly in common use. The grandfathers of the present generation of Nororichic had flint-tipped arrows. The Indians also know how to prepare excellent buckskin. They peg the hide on the ground and leave it for three days. And when it is sufficiently dry the hair is scraped off with a knife. It is then smeared over with the brain of the animal and hung up in the sun for four days. The next step is to wash it well in warm water in a wooden trough. Then it is well kneaded. And two people taking hold of it draw it out of the water and stretch it well between them. It is dried again and is then tanned with the crushed bark of the big-leaved oak tree. A natural cavity in a rock is chosen for a bed, in which the skin is left for two days. After this it is well rinsed and squeezed until no water remains in it. Two persons are required for the operation, which is always performed in a place on which the sun beats strongly, while at the same time it is sheltered from the wind by surrounding rocks. Deer are caught in snares fastened to a bent tree, so that the animal's foot is held, while the tree when released hoists the quarry up. The Indians also chase deer with dogs toward some narrow passage in the track where they have placed sharp blunt pine sticks, two feet long, against which the deer runs and hurts itself. Blackbirds are decoyed by kernels of corn threaded on a snare of feet of fiber hidden under the ground. The bird swallows the kernel, which becomes entangled in its esophagus and is caught. Small birds are also shot with bow and arrows, or killed with stones. The Tarahumir is ingenious in devising many kinds of traps for birds and animals. Into the burrow of the gopher he places a small upright frame cut from a piece of bark. There is a groove inside of the frame, and in this the snare runs, and a string is attached to a bow above ground. Another string, on which some grains of corn are threaded, keeps the snare set and obstructs the gopher's passage through the frame. When trying to get at the kernels the gopher cuts the string. The snare is released, and he is caught in his own burrow. 
Squirrels are hunted in the most primitive way by cutting down the tree on which an animal is discovered. Sometimes it will escape when the tree falls, and then the man has to cut down another tree, and thus he may go on felling as many as ten trees before he can bag his game. Not a very substantial reward for a whole day's work. The women make girdles and blankets on primitive looms, inserting characteristic designs in the weaving. It takes four days of constant work to make a girdle, but no woman weaves more than one blanket in a year, and it is almost an event when it is finished. The weaving frame consists simply of four sticks placed on the ground tied together in a rectangle or triangle, and pieces of reed on which the thread is wound, one for each color, are used as shuttles. Textiles from Pimashik are especially highly valued. The blankets from that locality are sold all over the Tarahumir country and are the finest made by the tribe. The Tarahumirs are not far advanced in the art of making pottery. Their work is crude and not very substantial. The industry is practiced only by the women, and the degree of ability varies considerably. The art is often hereditary. The nicest pottery I found in the neighborhood of Penalakic, where it is decorated with certain designs in red and white. One woman in a western barranca cultivated a specialty of making large jars for holding tesvino. The largest jar shown in the illustration was nearly 8 feet in circumference. Women when making pottery taste a little of the clay before commencing work, ascertaining whether it is the right kind or not. Some of the clay is acid and not good. The clay which is serviceable is a little sweet and of a pale yellow color. The clay is dried and ground, and then mixed with ground pieces of old pottery instead of sand. To make a piece of pottery, a lump of clay is hollowed out in the shape of a cup, and on this foundation the jar is built up, thin layers of clay being placed on successively, and smoothed carefully over with wet hands, making the walls thinner and thinner. The vessel is built up standing on a bowl filled with ashes and covered with a piece of cotton cloth. I saw a clever woman make a medium-sized jar in 27 minutes. She was seated in the Sunday and finished four vessels in one afternoon. Then, assisted by her husband, she began to even them on the outside with a small, smooth, oblong piece of a gourd. The vessels were then put into the house in order that they might not dry too quickly. After an interval of 15 minutes, during which she nursed her infant, which had been bothering her all the while, she began work again. First, with the edge of a sharpened stick she removed all irregularities on the outside and on the brim, and then with a stone she polished the vessel. To polish the jars seemed to take the longest time for each of the workers was engaged on a vessel for over an hour, and even then had not completed the task. They polished outside and a little way inside below the brim. Finally they painted decorations with ochre, and polished again for a long time, but only the outside. Now the jars were again put into the house to dry a little more before the polishing was finished. To burn the jars, they must first be thoroughly dried, as otherwise the fire would crack them. When the weather is nice the fire may be made outside the house, but usually it is built inside on the ordinary fireplace. Each vessel, one at a time, is turned upside down over charcoal, and pieces of pine bark are built up all around and over it like a square little hut. Then ignited, care is taken that no piece of bark comes so near to the jar as to touch and injure it. Where bark cannot be readily procured, wood is used, the heat first turns the clay dark, and afterward a pretty yellow color. There is one industry which has a peculiar bearing on the whole life of the Tarahumir, namely, the making of native beer. Nothing is so close to the heart of the Tarahumir as this liquor, called in Mexican Spanish Tesvino. It looks like milky water, and has quite an agreeable taste, reminding one of comis. To make it, 
the moist corn is allowed to sprout, then it is boiled and ground, and the seed of a grass resembling wheat is added as a ferment. The liquor is poured into a large earthen jars made solely for the purpose, and it should now stand for at least 24 hours, but inasmuch as the jars are only poorly made, they are not able to hold it very long, and the people take this responsibility on themselves. A row of beer jars turned upside down in front of a house is a characteristic sight in the Tarahumare region. The Tesvino forms an integral part of the Tarahumare religion. It is used at all its celebrations, dances, and ceremonies. It is given with the mother's milk to the infant to keep it from sickness. In curing the newborn babe the shaman sprinkles some over it to make it strong. Beer is applied internally and externally as a remedy for all diseases Tarahumare flesh is heir to. No man could get his field attended to if he did not at first make ready a good supply of tesvino, because beer is the only remuneration his assistants receive. Drinking tesvino at the feast marks the turning point in a person's life. A boy begins to drink tesvino because now he feels himself a man, and when a girl is seen at feasts, it is a sign that she is looking for a husband. No marriage is legitimate without a liberal consumption of tesvino by all parties present at the wedding. Hunting and fishing expeditions are accompanied by beer drinking to ensure luck. No matter how many times the Tarahumare changes his abode in the course of his life, he always makes tesvino when moving into a new house or cave. Even the dead would not get any rest, but come back and harm the survivors, if a quantity of tesvino were not set aside for them. In fact, there is absolutely no act of importance that is not, in one way or another, connected with the drinking of this beer. Never is a jar commenced unless some of the liquor is sacrificed before the cross. For the gods are believed to be as fond of the beer as are mortals. Rain cannot be obtained without tesvino, tesvino cannot be made without corn, and corn cannot grow without rain. This, in a nutshell, is the Tarahumare's view of life. There are many occasions during the year, especially during the winter time, when regular symposiums are held, generally inside of the house but the people never drink tesvino unless there is some purpose to be attained, be it luck in some undertaking, or good crops, or the health of the family, or some similar benefit. They may dance you marry for a little while at any of these functions. It is the custom to appoint one man to distribute the liquor among the guests. In doing this the host offers to the chosen one three drinking gourds full of tesvino, which the latter empties and he enters upon his duty by giving to every man present three gourds in succession and to every woman four. The guests, although from politeness hesitating between each gourd full, are only too delighted to comply with this inviolable rule, which speaks eloquently for their constitutions. The seat beside the distributor is the most coveted. I too, was always glad to get it, because it gave me the best chance to observe the behavior of the Indians at the feasts. The dispenser establishes himself close to the big jar, and being immensely popular with everybody he is never left alone. The geniality of the Tarahumares, their courteousness and politeness toward each other in the beginning of a feast, island to say the least, equal to that of many a civilized gentleman. When the cup is offered to anyone, he most urgently protests and insists that the distributor shall drink, often this remonstrance is heeded, but the gourd is never emptied, something is always left in it and this the guest has to take, and a second boardful is immediately held out to him, though he again refuses, he generally allows himself to be persuaded to drink it, and this mock refusing and urging goes on as long as they had their wits together, to my knowledge, this beer is not known outside of the Tarahumare tribe and their immediate neighbors, the northern Tetawans, the Tubers, 
and some Mexicans in Chihuahua who have also adopted it. It must not be confounded with the well-known Mexican drink, pulque, to which it is superior in flavor. It is very nourishing, and the Indians as well as the Mexicans are in the habit of abstaining from food before partaking of the beer, which they assert would otherwise not agree with them. But, food or no food, at all feasts and dances they drink such incredibly large quantities that they are invariably completely overpowered by it, though when taken in moderation Tesvino is only mildly stimulating. Another national beverage, maguey wine, is made from a favorite sweet food of many Indian tribes, which a white man's stomach can hardly digest, namely, the baked stalk of the maguey plant, or that of other agaves, to prepare the liquor, the leaves are cut from the bulb-shaped stalk or heart, which looks like a hard white head of cabbage, these hearts contain a great deal of saccharine matter, and are baked between hot stones and earth mounds, being protected against contact with earth by layers of grass. When the Tarahumers want to make maguey wine they leave the baked stalks in water in natural hollows or pockets in rocks, without any covering. The root of a certain plant called Frishalula was added as a ferment, and after two days the juice is wrung out with a blanket. An intoxicating drink is also made from another agave, called Chui, which, though common on the higher slopes of the Barrancas, has only recently become known to science. According to tradition it is the first plant God created and the liquor made from it is considered by the pagan Tarahumers as indispensable to certain ceremonies. The Tepehuans, too, put much importance on this brew, and say that the plant is so sensitive that if one passes a jar in which it is being boiled the liquid will not ferment. Finally it should be mentioned that an intoxicating, though extremely distasteful drink is made from the stalk of the maize plant cana. By pounding this material into a pulp, then allowing it to soak in water for three days, when it is fermented, whereupon the liquor is prepared in the same way as the maguey wine, chapter XIV politeness, and the demands of etiquette the daily life of the Tarahumer the woman's position is high standard of beauty women do the courting loves young dream marriage ceremonies, primitive and civilized childbirth childhood, for a barbarian, the Tarahumer is a very polite personage, in his language he even has a word, Rico, which is the equivalent of the English, please, and which he uses constantly, when passing a stranger, or leaving a person, he draws attention to his action by saying, I am going, as he grows civilized, however, he loses his good manners, in spite of this he is not hospitable, the guest gets food, but there is no room for him in the house of a tarahumir, a visitor never thinks of entering a house without first giving the family ample time to get ready to receive him, when he approaches a friend's home, good manners require him to stop sometimes as far as 20 or 30 yards off. If he is on more intimate terms with the family, he may come nearer, and make his presence known by coughing, then he sits down, selecting generally some little knoll from which he can be readily seen. In order not to embarrass his friends he does not even look at the house, but remains sitting there gazing into vacancy, his back or side turned toward the homestead. Should the host be absent the visitor may thus sit for a couple of hours, then he will rise and go slowly away again but under no circumstances will he enter the home, unless formally invited, because, he says, only the dogs enter houses uninvited, never will the lady of the house commit such a gross breach of etiquette as to go out and inform him of her husband's absence, to save the caller the trouble of waiting, nor will she if alone at home, make any statements as to that gentleman's whereabouts, the tarahumir never does anything without due deliberation, therefore he may, for a quarter of an hour, discuss with his wife the possible purport of the visit, 
before he goes out to see the man. They peep through the cracks in the wall at him, and if they happen to be eating or doing anything, they may keep the visitor waiting for half an hour. Finally the host shakes out the blanket on which he has been sitting, throws it around himself, and, casting a rapid glance to the right and left as he passes through the door, goes to take a seat a few yards distant from the caller. After some meditation on either side, the conversation, as in more civilized society, opens with remarks about the weather and the prospects for rain. When the subject is exhausted, and the host's curiosity as to where the man came from, what he is doing, and where he is going to, is satisfied. The former may go back to the house and fetch some pinoli and meat for the traveler. The object of the visit not infrequently is an invitation to take part in some game or foot race, and as the men are sure to remain undisturbed, they generally reach some understanding. A friend of the family island of course, finally invited to enter the house, and the customary salutation is, Asaga, sit down. In this connection it may be noted that the tar who wears in conversation look sidewise, or even turn their backs toward the person they speak to. After having eaten, the guest will carefully return every vessel in which food was given to him, and when he rises he hands back the skin on which he was seated, should occasion require. The host will say, it is getting late, and you cannot return to your home tonight. Where are you going to sleep? There is a good cave over yonder. With this he may indicate where the visitor may remain overnight. He will also tell him where he may find wood for the fire, and he will bring him food, but not unless the weather is very tempestuous will he invite an outsider to sleep in the house. When at home the tarahumir keeps regular hours, rising and retiring with the sun, having slept on a skin on the floor, rolled up in his blanket, without anything for a pillow except perhaps a stone or a chunk of wood, he sits for a while near the fire which is kept up most of the year at night in the house or cave. His wife brings him his breakfast of cannoli, while combing out his long black hair with a pine cone. He may ask the boys and girls whether they had attended to the traps he told them to set on the night before. They run out and soon they come in with some mice. Here they are, they say, but they are very poor. The father, however, may consider them fat and nice, and the mother affably adds, of course, they are fat. Since they have eaten so much corn, they go about to roast them, while the husband looks on. Generally the Tarahumers had a number of traps set to catch mice. They are so fond of this game that, when civilized, they have been known to ask permission from Mexican acquaintances to go through their houses to hunt for them. The mice are skinned and threaded on a thin stick, which is stuck through their necks and serves as a spit. Having enjoyed the dainty morsel thus set before him, the husband now tells his wife what he is going to do today. He will run deer or hunt squirrels, and accordingly takes his bow and arrows or his axe with him. In springtime he may go to the field. The wife also tells of her plans for the day. The work that engages most of the time of the housewives in Mexico is the grinding of the corn, on the matapi, for corn cakes, and if she has any time to spare she boils beans, looks for herbs, or works on her weaving frame but she never sits about idle. She looks as conscientiously after her duties as any white woman, she has always something to do, and many things to take care of in her small way. About sunset the husband returns, bringing a squirrel or rabbit, which he carries concealed in his blanket, that no neighbor may see it and expect an invitation to help to eat it. As he goes and comes he never salutes his wife or children. He enters in silence and takes his seat near the fire. The animal he caught he throws toward her where she is kneeling before the matapi, 
so that it falls on her skirt. She ejaculates, SSSSSSSSSSS, in approval and admiration, and, picking it up, praises its good points extravagantly, what a big mouth, what large claws, etc. He tells her how hard he worked to get that squirrel, how it had run up the tree, and he had to cut down that tree, till finally the dog caught it. The dog is beginning to be very good at hunting, he says, and now I am very tired. She spreads before him a generous supper of beans, herbs, and maize porridge, which she has ready for him, and while he eats she goes industriously to a work removing the fur from the game, but leaving on the skin, not only because it keeps the meat together while it is boiling, but mainly because she thinks there is a good deal of nourishment in it, which it would be a shame to waste, when the man is at home, and neither sleeping nor eating, he may sit down and make a bow or some arrows, or, stretched out on his back, he may resort to his favorite amusement, playing his homemade violin, like all Indians of Mexico, the Tarahumares are fond of music and had a good ear for it, when the Spaniards first came, they found no musical instruments among the Tarahumares except the short reed flute, so common to many Mexican tribes, the shaman's rattle, and the rasping stick, but they soon introduced the violin and even the guitar, and throughout Mexico the Indians now make these instruments themselves, using pine wood and other indigenous material in their construction, sometimes with remarkable skill and ingenuity, and for glue the juice of a certain lily root, having no idea of the value of money, they frequently sell a tolerably good instrument for 50 or even 25 cents, toward evening the Tarahumir father of a family gets more talkative and chats with his wife, and then, the day is done, and the darkness drops from the wings of night as a feather is wafted downward from a needle in his flight, and as the shadows deepen, he wraps himself closer in his blanket, and before he knows it childlike slumber enfolds him, frequently he grows hungry in the middle of the night, and reaches out for food, as well as for his violin, devoting himself to music for half an hour, before he drops off to sleep again, there are more women in the tribe than men, and they are looked upon as of less importance, there is a saying among the people that one man is as good as five women, her prayers are not of as much value as his, because she prays only to the moon, and her deity is not as big as his, the sun, for this reason her place is behind the man in all dances, yet she occupies a comparatively high position in the family, and no bargain is ever concluded until the husband has consulted his wife in the matter, I am bound to say, however, that on such occasions every member of the household, even the youngest and smallest child, is asked to give an opinion, and, if one of the little tops objects, the sale will not be closed, in such cases there is nothing for the customer to do but to try to influence the young businessman who raised the objection, not directly, but through his parents, this accounts for a good deal of the frightful loss of time incurred in dealing with these Indians, the purchase of a sheep may require two days, and the negotiations concerning an ox may extend over an entire week, that a woman of intelligence and character is appreciated even among barbarians is proven by the fact that once a woman was made gobernator, or chief, because, she knew more than men, she did not assume the title, but she is said to have ruled with more wisdom and justice than many of her predecessors and successors, husband and wife never show their affection in public except when drunk, parents kiss their little ones on the mouth and on the stomach, and the youngsters express their love for each other in the same way. On some occasions I have seen lovers sitting closely together, she holding on to his forefinger. The women are of a jealous disposition. 
the Tarahumir standard of beauty is not in accordance with the classic ideal as we perceive it, nor is it altogether in conformity with modern views on the subject. Large, fat thighs are the first requisite, and a good-looking person is called a beautiful thigh. Erect carriage is another essential to beauty. In the face, the eyes attract more notice than any other feature, and the most admired ones are the eyes like those of a mouse. This is the highest praise that can be bestowed upon anyone's personal appearance. They all like straight hair, and consider hair very ugly when it has a curl at the end. I once asked a bright young Tarahumir how the man must look who is most admired by women, whether his mouth and nose should be large or small, etc. And he replied, they must be similar to mine. Aside from good looks, the women like best men who work well. Just as in civilized countries a woman may look out for a good party, but wealth does not make the possessor more attractive to the girls. In Nurarachik was an elderly man who owned 40 head of cattle and 18 horses. When he became a widower, he had to live with an elderly woman of bad reputation, as he could not get another woman to marry him. The young women enjoy absolute liberty, except as regards Mexicans, against whom they are always warned. They are told that they become sick from contact with such men. Never are they forced to contract what would turn out to be a loveless marriage. A beautiful Indian girl was much sought for by a Mexican. He spoke the Tarahumir language very well, and offered to give her a good house and fine clothes and a whole handful of silver dollars. Her brother, who was half civilized, and therefore more corrupt than the ordinary Indian, also tried to persuade her to accept the rich sweeter, but she tossed up her head and exclaimed, China Amagatshana Gale, which, freely translated, means, I do not like that fellow, love goes where it chooses. The custom of the country requires the girl to do all the courting. She is just as bashful as the young swain whom she wishes to fascinate, but she has to take the initiative in love affairs. The young people meet only at the feasts, and after she had got mildly under the influence of the native beer that is liberally consumed by all, she tries to attract his attention by dancing before him in a clumsy way up and down on the same spot, but so bashful is she that she persistently keeps her back turned toward him. She may also sit down near him and pull his blanket and sing to him in a gentle low voice a simple love song, Southeast Southeast Mati Rei Hoi Iru Southeast Southeast Mati Rei Hoi Iva Botiful Man to be sure, Botiful Man to be sure, if occasion requires. The parents of the girl may say to the parents of the boy, Our daughter wants to marry your son. Then they send the girl to the boy's home, that the young people may become acquainted, for two or three days, perhaps. They do not speak to each other, but finally she playfully begins to throw pebbles at him. If he does not return them, she understands that he does not care for her. If he throws them back at her, she knows that she has won him. She lets her blanket drop and runs off into the woods, and he is not long in following her. Sometimes the boy, when he likes a girl very much, may make the first advances, but even then he has to wait until she throws the first pebbles and drops the blanket. For, among the Indians, it is the woman who seeks the man, and the fair who deserve the brave. Next day they come home together, and after this they do not hide themselves anymore. The parents of the girl are advised to make Tesvino, as the young couple should not be separated anymore, and word is sent out to a few friends and relatives to come to the wedding. The guests arrive in the afternoon and most of the people remain outside of the house during the ceremony, but the bridegroom and his parents go inside where they seat themselves on skins spread out on the floor. The mother of the girl has placed a large skin next to a big jar of tesvino, 
and on this the father of the boy sits down. As soon as he has taken his place, the host offers him three gourds full of the drink and requests him to accept the office of honor, the distribution of Tesbino to all present, and he immediately enters upon his duties. He first gives four gourds full to the mother of the bride, as the mistress of the Tesbino, and three gourds full to the host. The master, then four gourds full to his own wife. The bridal couple have been called in and told to sit down side by side, and all the rest of the people come in and stand around the pair. There is no special place assigned to anyone, but the father of the boy stands up and his mother sits down, while the girl's father sits down and her mother stands up. The boy's father now makes a speech, telling the bridal couple that they must remain together, and never separate nor fight. He specially tells the young man that he has to kill deer and take care always to bring some animal home to his wife, even if it be only a chipmunk or a mass. He also has to plow and to sow corn and to raise crops, that he and she may always have enough to eat and not go hungry. The father of the girl next takes the word, addressing himself mostly to the bride. Now that she is united to the man of her choice, she should always comply with her wifely duties. She must make blankets for her husband and be industrious, make tesvino and iskiet, pinoli, tortillas, gather herbs, etc. that her husband may always have something to eat and not go hungry, he names all the herbs singly, she must also help him, in her way, with the plowing and sowing, so that he may raise plenty of corn to make tesvino that others may help him, she never must be lazy, the father of the girl now gives tesvino to his future son-in-law, whose father in turn gives some to the bride, the bridal couple are covered with blankets, and in some cases his and her right hands are tied together. There is no other marriage ceremony, but all the guests partake of the liberally flowing bowl, and the festivities end in general and complete intoxication. About two weeks later, the parents of the bridegroom make a feast exactly the same in character, but now the father of the girl occupies the seat of honor next to the big Tesvino jar and acts as distributor. He also makes the first speech, the bridegroom.